Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, January 19th, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And Christine Rosen is off today. So uh, as we as we record this, uh, we are 24 hours and 22 minutes away from the last moment of the Trump administration and the first moment of the Biden administration. And I have to say that I am very much puzzled and baffled by what the world is going to be like on Thursday compared to today, because it still seems to me that Donald Trump is is taking up the mind space of 90% of the political conversation in the United States, even as he leaves office and even as he basically has not been speaking or publicly for days and days and days. Um, uh, You know, we have had this situation with him as the dominating figure in American and world politics now for five years or almost five years. And, and uh, I don't know that we know how we're going to have conversations without him so much so that when this image appeared last night, um, on the mall of these flags, these hundreds of thousands of flags that have been put out on the mall in tribute to the people who had uh, who have perished of COVID. I was almost like, how did that happen? I, I mean, I know the Biden people did it, but I, how did that happen? Like, what Biden people? I didn't even know that they were allowed to do anything until the inauguration, you know, whereas in an ordinary set of circumstances, both not Trump being president and without COVID, of course, this whole last week would have been people are coming to Washington. They're checking into their hotels. There are parties. Who's doing this? Who's going to be there? The Bidens have shown up and they're going to be doing X, Y, and Z on Tuesday night. And then there's going to be a day of service. And then there'll be this and then there'll be that. And of course, there's going to be this uh, inauguration where nobody is present and and there'll be no crowds on the mall and a lot of cops and all of this. And it just doesn't feel like anything is going to change, but of course, everything is going to change. You know, I think there's going to be a, an interesting test for the media coming very soon. So Trump has, uh, you know, been removed from platforms um, owing to um, his incitement and the, the, the words he uses being um, uh, deemed as uh, incitement. So now he's going to be out of office. He won't have Twitter. He will, um, somehow find a megaphone, right? I mean, we, we assume, or let's assume for this argument, uh, elsewhere, some other platform, perhaps his own, who knows? Will the media uh, that praised his being deplatformed because of in- incitement, will they not cover it? Because to cover it would also be to um, broadcast uh, his incitement, right? Well, the question is, who are the media? Because yeah. obviously, Fox News is going to cover it. Fox sure, News is of course. restructuring itself, it appears, um, to do something about its ratings decline by going more heavily, oddly enough, in the MAGA direction. It's uh, it's um, moved its programming around and is putting uh, sort of uh, Trump-friendly people at 7 o'clock in the 7 o'clock hour, which was a news hour and is now going to become another opinion hour. Um, so they will they will be looking for occasions and opportunities on which to on which to do that 
as well as, you know, obviously be provide some kind of uh, corrective to the coverage of Joe Biden, which we can presume will be worshipful in the first hundred days or so. Noah, how do you, I just think that there's a kind of addiction to, to, to Trump. And of course there's an addiction to every president, like Obama was the center of all discussion and George W. Bush was the center of all discussion. It's sort of, it's in the nature of presidencies to generate this kind of approach. And then if people forget that that was the case, and obviously the second term of Bill Clinton, uh, the entire conversation in the United States from January of 1998 until February of 1999 revolved exclusive, exclusively around the personal behavior and personal peccadilloes or defense of same of Bill Clinton. So it's been like 20, you know, it's been like uh, 30 years that presidents very much part of the 24 hour news cycle created by cable news. And then by the internet, that presidents have been this, these, this sort of the gigantic figure that blots out all, all other news question is, can Biden be that person after Trump or is, has Trump so changed it that he has to be that person? I mean, <clears throat> I'm not even sure they want to be. It's kind of hard to see precisely what kind of figure Joe Biden and Joe Biden's administration want to be. They, they talk in public and on background to reporters like they want to be um, boring, um, very policy oriented and detail oriented and to drown you in the sort of stuff that'll make you tune out deliberately to make you tune out. And this is a, a governing strategy to try to you know, bury you in details to the extent that you can't actually parse legislation, executive orders and their effect. Uh, and just, you know, to, to err on the side of, uh, of, of being, uh, you know, to err on the side of, of the kind of government that makes, makes you want to tune out. And that's the sort of thing that cable news channels are going to have to fight against. They are going to have to drum up drama. They are going to have to go into interpersonal squabbles within the White House between Congress and what have you. And that's the sort of thing that we're used to. But there's going to be a huge tune out effect on the part of people who have been drawn into politics, not just viewers, but people who cover this sort of thing for a living who've been drawn into it because of the drama. They like the drama. They like the tension. They like the anxiety that Donald Trump has produced in in his detractors and even the people who are attracted to his movement. So they're not going to be there. There's a fiduciary responsibility on the part of some of these outlets to not let go of that, of that drama. I don't understand. I don't know how they can, I don't know how they can navigate um, a a world in which Joe Biden is deliberately uh, somnescent because, you know, as much as that'd be good governance, it'd be terrible for the bottom line. So they really do. There will be a conflict there that, and, and my money would be on media manufacturing narratives that are favorable to to the drama that we become accustomed to. But the, but the drama doesn't have to be Biden centered. The drama this is where Trump comes in. Uh, the drama can be uh, how is the job of extirpating the fascist threat represented by uh, Trump and the supposed fascist threat represented by Trump and by the Republican Party that is in its thrall? How is that going? How is the extirpation going? Uh, what is the nature of the takeover of the Republican Party and its ongoing uh, role? I mean, we saw the um, Wyoming Republican Party or parts of it moving to censure Liz Cheney um, for her uh, vote to impeach. We have the Arizona Republican Party moving to censure 
Cindy McCain and Jeff Flake for uh, being uh, insufficiently uh, pro-Trump and Cindy McCain for the evil of having endorsed Joe Biden. Uh, people in Wyoming talking about seceding. I mean, there is there is a lot of material uh, for people to use and to and to de- deploy. The question is whether uh, they will that will serve simply to keep Donald Trump as a more central media figure than Joe Biden. Yeah, it will. But there's a, a level of editorial judgment that would have to be made in order for you to cover those things at with the kind of um, ferocity that they covered that that sort of stuff in the in the Trump era. Um, my my uh, inclination there is that in a pre-Trump world, that sort of thing is newsworthy, but it's newsworthy insofar as you lump it into a single piece um, about these intra-party tensions, and it maybe gets you know a three coverage. It's not it's not the world's biggest story. I mean, we're talking about committees at a state level, full of functionaries, many of whom are uh, notoriously at that level. Um, unhinged activist types who don't have a whole lot of say over how the party develops. The party develops top down. And that's the sort of editorial judgment that I don't think news organizations can afford to make in the age of Trump, not just because they're being overly cautious, although you could make a case because to that, but, but also because it advances this narrative of the Republican party as being in a state of civil war, which has been the narrative, the prevailing narrative since 2008, at least. And, um, you already see news organizations pivoting to this, you know, covering the Republican Party in the wilderness in an anthropological way, uh, as though they're, they're uh, you know, uh, devoting themselves to a scientific evaluation of the evolution of this organism in its natural state. I think you're being, it's, I, I, it's, I, I, but I, it's, a, it's a manufactured narrative and one that is, you know, purely designed to to keep the Trump momentum, the movement of, of Trump momentum and, you know, the, the, the monetary value that was associated with it going. Well, I, I don't think it's that um, uh, self-conscious that they know they need to do it because it, it, it you know, the, they don't know what's going to generate ratings. Let's put it this way. And one of the reasons that uh, Trump may be so important to them going forward is that um, it's not going to be enough to say, well, there's this guy in Wyoming who wants to censure Liz Cheney because A, who's Liz Cheney and B, who's the guy in Wyoming? But if you say Trump, Trump then creates all these associations. And on the other hand, as I think you said to begin with, they are all, or Abe said to begin with, uh, they're all committed to the idea that Trump needs to be deplatformed and silenced uh, because of his unique threat. And so uh, they're going to be torn in both directions because, um, yeah, the the sort of the side horror stories, look, the classic media coverage of the Republican Party is to find somebody, you know, a town councilman in Colorado Springs who says something racist and then make that into the horror of the day. That's a that's a classic thing. But uh, Trump took that to a whole other level where it wasn't just a guy in Colorado Springs. It was the president of the United States doing, you know, things that I think were legitimately unspeakable in some cases and certainly over the last month. And so that 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 focal point removed not only from our uh, ability to pay attention to politics people who do this for a living but also for from from the general public that has also gotten addicted to to the outrage to being outraged to trump 
But there's also the possibility, I think it's a very real possibility, that there could arise a right-wing populist figure who does more than just censure Liz Cheney, um, who seeks to fill the vacuum of of uh, that that Trump left behind uh, in the on the outrage um, field, and he will have, he or she will of course be um, accommodated by a media that what that what that would like to put a new villain up there. We never see these things coming beforehand. There there could be there could be a a huge figure looming over. Um, the right that that was that we didn't expect in I don't know three four or five months. Well, people pop up and then they then they explode. There's also that phenomenon, like Michael Avenatti, you know, who sort of popped up and then blew and you know he sort of like became a gigantic media figure and then blew himself up. It was like two months. It was like two months from the moment that people were talking about Avenatti running for president to when he gets arrested and, you know, and, and, and has all these uh, uh, legal actions uh, taken against him for uh, double billing clients and things like that. So uh, there's that phenomenon of, of the moment, which is that everything is crazy and crazy people have a unique ability to generate heat and light and, and, and news um, in part because of the nature of the this inexhaustible maw. But I, I still think they need Trump and yet they're committed to doing something, do, doing what they can to move Trump off. Uh, but, you know, the Lincoln Project doesn't want to move Trump off. The Lincoln Project wants to continue to focus on Trump and to sort of attack everything that's any even ancillarily connected. If that is that a word, ancillarily? I just I think I just made that up. I didn't work for me. Not really a word, but okay. Um, connected to him uh, because that's their business model and that's also their passion and their 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 goal. And uh, you know, the the liberal media have every reason to do what they can to, uh, uh, in an odd way, support the fringe power in the Republican Party of the more extreme elements. Because the more they seem to dominate the conversation, dominate the discussion, and and are the motive force of the Republican Party, the easier it is for the Democrats and the liberals not only to be outraged against them, but to mobilize against them and to run against them and to turn the entire party into Sharon Angle, uh, Richard Murdoch, uh, Todd Akin, the senatorial candidates from 2012 who uh, made it impossible for the Republicans to gain control of the Senate in 2010-2012 because they were so uh, insane and extreme. Um, you know, I think something that's going to take up a lot of, I mean, since we're mostly focusing on the media here, um, a lot of uh, the media's attention, which will, will be a kind of um, pandemic triumphalism. Um, there will be a lot of stories about how we are now in good hands and we are now making progress on the pandemic. And that in its way will, every bit of it will be sort of about Trump, right? It will be, it will be a way of dinging Trump and saying, you know, this is we are we are we are we are pulling out of the mess <clears throat> that the that the horrible last president uh, left us in. Um, in that way, the story stays on Trump, sort of. And it's everybody's best practices to not let Trump go. Democrats have a have a political imperative to tether every Republican from now until the rapture to Donald Trump. Republicans can't let go of Donald Trump because he mobilizes the base. Media can't let go of Trump because he's a he's a money making you know machine. Trump can't let go of Trump because Trump wants to be Trump. 
So everybody has, as much as maybe everybody genuinely and sincerely wants to move on and heal the nation, the imperatives, financial, political, or otherwise, are to keep him in the news. And to mirror his affect, can we do the Maria Bartiromo thing? Sure. Because it is absolutely horrific. John, you flagged this for us. Maria Bartiromo, Fox business anchor, believe this morning, um, just casually dropping this quote. A new report says that some far-right protesters have discussed posing as members of the National Guard to infiltrate the inauguration, much the way Democrats infiltrated two weeks ago and put on MAGA clothing, referring to the Capitol riots. Democrats. I, I, I suppose she's thinking like Sherry Bustos put on a, a, a mega hat and, and started raiding the Capitol building. This is insane. What the hell is this? There was it literally not- one arrest. There was one arrest of a leftist extremist who seemed to have been in, in, in the, you know, a person, right. Who right. got into the Capitol one, one arrest. There have been, I think 250 arrests made so far. There is one. We, re- we reference that pl- uh, the ProPublica um, video collage, collaborate, you know, all the parlor videos that were taken down. And I was watching some of them this morning and they're absolutely horrific. And you're talking about many hundreds, probably thousands of people outside and many hundreds inside that building. And um, there's no ambiguity about what these people were, who, what, what they were doing and what their intentions were. Um, so this is just rank uh, propaganda and abject lying to the audience deliberately designed to mislead them. And this is a news channel. This is a cable news channel that is well, doing this. This is my question to you. It, it makes, makes you not want to get up in the morning. It's such a Sisyphean task. Is it lying and rank propaganda or is it is it psychosis? I mean, I, I don't know which is better or worse or whatever. I don't know. Maria Bartiromo became uh, famous because she was she was the first of the the CNBC money honeys. You remember this? 25 years ago, she was somebody who was on the floor of the stock exchange sort of talking about where the Dow was that hour. And then she became a kind of money pundit on CNBC and had a show and she interviewed CEOs and stuff like that. She married one. Uh, she was sort of in, and something happened to her over the last seven or eight years. And she has now become a MAGA centric, uh, figure uh, very little different from, and as this quote indicates, and she is about to get a tryout in the in the seven o'clock hour on Fox, uh, which is trying, which is doing some kind of a kind of bake off with various Fox personalities to see who gets this hour. Oh, what I've seen it's her, Kilmeade, and um, uh, Trey Gowdy. Um, Trey Gowdy, and Kilmeade, uh, Rachel, Kilmeade and Gowdy. Rachel, Rachel, Rachel Campos Duffy, okay, she she's who is also a who who is a very charming person, but has gone totally maga centric. Um, so, I, I think your question, though, John, <clears throat> is an excellent one, and I'm I'm inclined to think that it is more about delusional thinking than rank pop- propaganda. Um, I I have tended, and this 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 goes for um, the. the left extremists as well. I, I tend to take them at their word uh, more than not. Um, I think that, that it, and I think that is a worse problem. I think it, I think it's worse than rank propaganda. I think they are in the throes of, of conspiracy thinking. I mean, it's interesting because propaganda, not propaganda, it's almost as though it doesn't matter anymore. Um, and, uh, 
I mean, there's an interesting thing going on. So uh, Biden will be sworn in at noon tomorrow. And uh, someone just, uh, as we're speaking, sends me a text uh, uh, with a, a link to a tweet by a, a pastor named Greg Locke. Pastor Greg Locke, who has 100,000 Twitter followers. And this view is uh, paralleled and echoed all over the place. Quote, to be clear, I've changed my mind about nothing. Trump will remain president. Biden will be exposed. America will remain free. Revival is coming, unquote. Okay, 100,000 followers. I don't know who this guy is, really. but uh, And the replies are, amen. Yup, God is good. Hallelujah. Uh, We love you, Pastor Locke. You know, uh, I am praying for this to happen. Um, agreed, <laughs> you know, I mean, so this isn't, you know, it, it, Trump said the election was stolen and we're never going to accept the validity of the Biden presidency. This is Trump will remain president after 12 p.m. tomorrow. Now, again, so it's 100,000 followers. We don't know who the followers are. Half of them could be, you know, like Media Matters for America trying to watch crazy right-wing opinion. But let's say that there are there are 5 million people in the United States, which would make up, you know, 2% of the population or something like that, who actually think that somehow between now and 12 p.m. tomorrow, Trump will figure out a way to remain president. Um. And then it's 12.01 and Trump is no longer president. That's a lot of people whose uh, delusion will then crash into the shoals of reality. Does that mean it? Does it matter? Do we just laugh that off because it's only 2% of America? I I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. Look, I I, I don't think we laugh it off. We saw the size of the mob at the Capitol. They're not all propagandists they're they're there they were there because they believe it you know right. and 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 they are they are just the tip of the spear look i was thinking about this in relation to uh 2016 and no poll was done it in, in 2017 on the verge of the uh on the verge of the inauguration of donald trump where Democrats were asked if they believed that Trump had been was a legitimate president or had been elected legitimately. There was no poll. The only thing I could find was a Harris poll in the spring of 2017 where people were asked what Democrats thought. Not not what the truth was, but what they thought Democrats thought. And it was something like 60% of Democrats thought that other Democrats thought that Trump wasn't a legitimate president. So let's just say, so it's not really an, it's not a precise parallel, but um, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of people who are expressing woe, including me at the fact that the polling in the last week suggests that 60 to 70% of Americans think that Biden's election was illegitimate and unfair. And he is, he is an illegitimate president. But I, I think basically this is an attitude that is now going to be shared by every has was, was thought about pretty much every president, including Obama, if you take the retroactive birtherism as an effort to delegitimize his election, though it only rose like really in 2011, 2010, 2011. So Bush was illegitimate because Florida was stolen. 
Obama was illegitimate because he was not a legitimate president because he wasn't born in the United States. Trump was illegitimate because Russia and because he didn't win the popular vote. And now Biden is illegitimate because they changed the, they made it too easy for people to vote, as far as I can tell. And the media are unfair. The media are unfair and they changed the rules. And the media being unfair was also part of the Obama, would be part of a general Republican idea or conservative idea that, uh, uh, both in 20, 2008 and 2012, that the media served as a blocking tackle, wouldn't report on the worst aspects of of Obama's uh, history and associations, didn't like tell us what happened on the famous Rashid Holiday birthday party celebration tape where Obama spoke that the LA Times literally buried or you know put in a vault and won't let anyone ever hear and then in 2012 sort of serving as their has his blocking tackle on Romney and all of that so that's illegitimate so basically all people that you disagree with are now illegitimate but this dates back this dates yeah, back Yeah but it's different now I mean there was as surveys go there was this famous YouGov poll from uh, mid 2018 that found a full two thirds of Democrats said that they believed Russia tampered with vote tallies on election day, which was not ever de- alleged, much less proven. It was just sort of a something that they were offered that opportunity to say that. And then they took that opportunity as sort of a comfort blanket. And you saw people like throughout, throughout Donald Trump's presidency, people like Hillary Clinton, his, his 2016 opponent saying that Donald Trump was an illegitimate president, using those words, illegitimate president, feeding these these fires. What was different about it is that nobody ever acted that way. They said it. They kind of meant it. They wanted to believe it. But nobody was ever acting like this government had been stolen, hijacked by an illegitimate president. And that rendered the entire system illegitimate thus and legitimized whatever action you would take against it. Um now people are acting like the government is illegitimate and then uh, and all rules of engagement are out the window and you can do whatever you can to restore the legitimacy of that government, even taking, taking extra legal action, extra constitutional action to uh, support that project. That's what's different about this. That's what makes it scary. And then it's incumbent on everybody who sort of played footsie with these narratives to realize that they were playing with fire and to stop doing it. But we haven't seen that kind of responsibility yet. Uh, well, listen, um, you know, with the change in administration, we have a change in all kinds of policies, uh, f- and uh, fiscal and monetary policy will be among uh, the most notable uh, in terms of changes. Janet Yellen testifying today uh, in her hearing uh, to be confirmed as Secretary of the Treasury um, is somebody, uh, if you need to know what Janet Yellen's going to think, former chairman of the Fed, now becoming the, uh, the Treasury Secretary, you need uh, financial advice and financial analysis that deals with what she will do. And you can get that really brilliantly from our friends at the Bonson Group, um, a financial management and services firm with $2.6 billion under management that uh brings to its job an understanding of the intersection of public policy and uh and finances and investing uh that is unparalleled particularly in a world of financial advice where basically the people that you might hire to handle your stock portfolio have the same level of understanding as a reasonably well-informed high schooler um 
and and so you really want to look to a group like the Bonson Group. If you don't try, if you don't believe me about this, go read their investment analysis and commentary at dividendcafe.com. That's a, a, a weekly newsletter. There's the dctoday.com, which is another Bonson Group product that uh, really goes through what happened that day or the previous day in the markets. Um, the Bonson Group is an antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial advice and services industry. You really want to turn to them for for good counsel, good advice, good thoughts, and an understanding of this central moment in American history. The Bonson Group, DividendToCafe.com, TheDCToday.com, and we thank the Bonson Group for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast. Um, so in the in the realm of uh, Biden getting pr- protection or protexia or support from the media, uh, I think um, you got referred to um, sort of COVID triumphalism, and we're already seeing this happen uh, in the in the you know Biden saying he's going to manage the hell <clears throat> out of this crisis. We have uh, a lot of extremely pessimistic talk coming out of. The, administ- the incoming administration, Ron Klain, the White House chief of staff, saying we're going to see half a million deaths, uh, you know, before spring. Um, uh, Biden apparently is going to focus on this in his inaugural address, and I think be pretty dark. And uh, and a lot of this is then going to be in support of Biden saying I'm going to get a hundred. We're going to get a hundred million doses into American arms in a hundred days. But as we pointed out the other day, and as Yuval Levin points out this morning in NationalReview.com, um, I, it's not that ambitious a task to get a hundred million doses. We have basically been averaging Thursday and Friday of last week. We averaged a million doses in American arms. Uh, so 100 million doses is a million doses a day. So we're already there. So I don't know how managing the hell out of this is going to get us to a better, shouldn't shouldn't uh, managing the hell out of this mean that this accelerates rather than stays on the pace that it has already achieved? Abe, uh, you, are our, you, are, you are the person who like stares uh, at those numbers hours and day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the numbers have been, um, they, they, they do fluctuate. Like, so we, we went, we dipped a little then on, uh, uh, over the weekend. Um, but, well, but you're going to dip over the weekend but, because, yeah, but, but, but the trend is unmistakably, um, going in the right direction. I mean, we, we've been rising dramatically, um, uh, week after week. Um, yeah, the, the, the analogy is overused, but this should be a kind of moonshot. I mean, he should be shooting for something massive, right? Way beyond um, the numbers that we're already talking about, um, as opposed to being right in, let's say, right in the zone of of where we are. Um, And and the weird thing is how few people, not weird, it's kind of expected, but the notable thing is how few people called him on this. You know, this this was already accepted as, as part of the, oh, thank God we have someone in there who's going to, who's going to take care of this. I mean, look, I, I don't think there's any question, I, you know, that uh, Trump or the Trump administration deserve praise for the uh, speed with which the vaccines were developed and supported and the, the way the, the policy decision to basically just throw billions of dollars at these uh, pharmaceutical companies saying, look, if you develop a vaccine, we're going to buy it, no questions asked. 
so assume you're going to get $5 billion from us and go and, and go to it, was something that I'm not sure that a Democratic administration would have done and was something that was very sound. It's also clear that America's health care or public health apparatus has failed this country massively in a way that will, I think, be studied uh in the in the way that sort of some of the you know the failures around Pearl Harbor or something were studied because we knew that the need to distribute vaccines was coming uh, because there was already talk that we would have vaccines by the fall in the late spring and uh, no system of protocols was developed they knew they were going to need refrigerators for the for the extremely cold temperatures at which some of these were going to be stored in places that had never needed uh, refrigeration like that. And they knew this and they knew that and they knew the other thing. And um, we were going to let 50 states decide and all of that. And then apparently nobody did anything right. That that's That's what's astonishing to me, with the exception of maybe West Virginia, which apparently is like far out distancing every other state in the country in terms of how this is working. Um, what were these people doing? Okay, they were so busy because they were dealing with COVID as it was going. But I mean, you didn't hire new logistics people. You didn't, I mean, I thought the Army Corps of Engineers was going to handle this or people were going to handle this. And it is kind of staggering the degree of governmental failure at all levels to anticipate how this was going to work and that we started having these Talmudic debates about how, you know, who, you know, about who should get it and why? What's the moral frame in which so they could all sit around on Zooms pulling their respective beards, talking about white privilege and minority needs and who should get it for and all of this while people were dying and while a second while this second wave was 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 coming, um, and we're at a point where you know we are we are fifth or sixth in the world in terms of. Uh, administering the vaccine. And and it's fine to lay this at the Trump administration's feet, and it deserves it. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's not like if they'd shown leadership, if Trump had depoliticized this to some degree and said, look, we're not, we're dropping all, this is something we're going to deal with in a separate way. He didn't know what the hell he was doing. And Pence didn't, Pence was humoring Trump. And they didn't call in 50 health. They didn't come up with a unified centralized plan or even a plan that wasn't unified or centralized but in which you would you would come up with benchmarks or you would come have a general theory of how to do this right and that's a failure of national leadership and any effort to brown nose or try to write off or say trump doesn't deserve responsibility for that is just being an apologist but every state health commissioner seems to be in the same boat, every governor who didn't, you know, start in July trying to think about how this was going to go, and instead wanted Walmart, you know, Walmart, Walgreens, and CVS to handle it somehow. It's just jaw dropping to me. Um, but Noah, you were you were struck by, and so what do governments like to do, right, Noah? They like lockdowns. That's what they like they do. to administer lockdowns. I don't want to inter- interrupt your, your point briefly, but you know the states that have appealed to private mechanisms to try to bridge the gap here that is created by lethargy in the public sector level um, have been you know, castigated for it, scorned 
for for doing something so crass as appealing to Eventbrite to create, you know, can, uh, events where you can get a, a quick vaccination if they have too many vaccines and not enough first responders to get it, or, you know, to enlist Publix, a supermarket uh, in the South, supermarket chain in the South, to distribute this sort of thing. Um, but these are pretty effective mechanisms for, for redistributing this vaccine, and I don't see why we shouldn't be appealing to these uh, institutions to, to, you know, cover cover the gaps that are left by the public sector. I don't know why there is frustration with that sort of thing when everybody needs to be marshaled into the support of this cause. But there is, you read it all the time as though it's like, ah, well, you know, they don't have faith in the fed, in the federal or state level governments to do this sort of thing. And that's a a lack of faith. It's like, why should you, why should you at this point? What literally is just predicated on faith. Okay. But this is the one thing in 2021 you should be able to do, which is you're a person in New York state. You want a vaccine. You're in New York city. You want a vaccine and you, you fit one of the categories. There is no centralized database. You go, you go on a website. There are 55 different places to get an appointment. Um, if you get an appointment at one, that doesn't mean you can't get an appointment at the other. You go to the other, you make another appointment. You go to a third, you, or all the appointments are gone. Nobody, there is no system at which, uh, unlike every other thing on earth, where if you do X, it closes off doorway Y because there's a cell phone and the internet and databases can be shared and do all that. No one set that up. Now, Noah, you are, I mean, you guys are absolutely, you are absolutely right that this would have been done better if Eventbrite had done it, precisely because Eventbrite and all these things are set up to handle such things, whereas, you know, a an individual uh, city MD that ha- is going to have the vaccine that isn't connected to a whole bunch of other databases. And that's New York State, which was the worst hit state in the country until California just got outdistanced us, right? So um, if you go, it's all luck if you got an appointment for somebody over the age of 65 or 75. Luck, luck. It's luck. Why on earth should it be luck? And there are plenty of people in the medical field who have very limited exposure to potential at-risk patients who are taking advantage of their criteria um, to get vaccinated and good for them. Everybody should. There is no reason why you should have any frustration with somebody who gets this vaccine. Cause that's one less person who gets the vaccine. That's a but very plenty- important. That is a really, really important point about this. And, and not, not enough people are making it, which is that there is this idea that it's immoral for you for so-and-so to get it before thus and such. But in a world in which what we're trying to do is get national herd immunity, it actually doesn't matter whether you're 22 or 80 if you get it. Or black or white or rich or poor. Of course, it does matter. It makes perfect sense. You have to organize it somehow. Uh, And the way Israel did it was by age. So they had 75, 65, 55, 45, 35, right? So that, and that's how they did it. And that makes sense because you're at least breaking it up into measurable chunks. So, you know, you've gotten, you know, as much participation as you're going to get in this age group up to this point. It's sort of like, you know, lines at the airport when you're in zone one, zone two, zone three, zone four, so you can load the plane properly. Um, But yeah, but the notion that it's not fair 
for you know white people to get it before black people this is not a privilege like this is herd immunity we're talking about here 330 million people are supposed to be protected from the ravages of the virus i have to say regarding the unpreparedness perhaps if um states had spent those months that while you know over the spring and summer and and fall while we were getting uh the reports of successful vaccine trials in if um, a, a lot of these states had spent that time not saying, oh, we're not going to get the vaccine by the by, as soon as the president says, that's ridiculous, or not saying I wouldn't trust a vaccine uh, that comes out of this administration, and instead actually laying the groundwork to deliver a vaccine the second it hits the ground, we could be in better shape. Well, you know, uh, that's why I'm saying we need uh, among the many reckonings we need among them, like how did January 6th happen and all of that. um, If there would be a way to do a very serious long term dive into what happened with this public health crisis and, uh, you know, uh, where the failures were and how we can learn from them. That would be great. And, of course, it's not really going to happen that way because too many people who understand this are implicated and have uh, political access to grind. And oddly enough, I don't feel like we are grinding an axe here. Like, you know, we are not – We're this is an ideological publication and we're – you know, we – we like whom we like and we dislike whom we dislike, but I don't really care about that in this case. And I think it would be great for America if we could look at this dispassionately once it is over and try to make sure that how this happened never happens again. But I don't know that that's going to happen. But I, what I do know is going to happen is I'm going to talk to you about Freshly, another new advertiser for us. Cause, um, Do you need help keeping your New Year's resolutions to get in shape and eat right? Then it's time to get Freshly. Their delicious meals are designed by nutritionists and cooked by chefs and make it easier to eat better. Getting everything you need to cook dinner can be complicated right now, but with Freshly, it's simple. It offers fresh-made, chef-made, nutrient-packed, delicious meal delivered fresh to your door. No cooking required. Uh, ordering is easy. You visit Freshly.com and choose from over 30 delicious, satisfying, better-for-you meals like steak, peppercorn, or chicken pesto bowl. Your meals arrive cooked and fresh every week so you can keep your fridge stocked and skip the trip to the store. It can fit your lifestyle with a variety of plans and meals to pick from that work for your dietary needs, preferences, tastes, and family size. And now our listeners can try Freshly for just $6.16 per meal. Stop searching the internet for healthy food near me every night and start living life freshly. Meals always delivered fresh, never frozen, and ready to heat and enjoy in just three minutes. With new meals added each week, Freshly brings the convenience of chef-made, nutritionist-designed classics right to your kitchen. Right now, Freshly is offering our listeners $40 off their first two orders when you go to Freshly.com slash commentary. Make better eating your New Year's resolution and get a special limited-time offer. Go to Freshly.com slash commentary for 40 bucks off your first two orders. 40 bucks off your first two orders. Freshly.com slash commentary. Go there to learn more. Uh, Abe, let's talk a little about our uh, February issue, which is just out. We talked to Brett Stevens yesterday uh, about uh, his blockbuster article, Memo to President Biden, Please Don't Mess Up the Abraham Accords. But there's a lot of interesting stuff in that issue. I, I'm, I'm particularly struck as 
Uh, Antony Blinken, the incoming Secretary of State, is testifying today uh, in prepar- uh, before the Senate uh, Foreign Services Committee uh, to be approved uh, as the Secretary of State uh, with Ruth Weiss's piece, A Tale of Five Blinkens. Um, right, this uh, article where she goes through uh, uh, the, the, the history of the Blinken family, Blinken's great-grandfather, um, was a notable Yiddish writer of the at the turn of the century. His uh, grandfather became an extraordinarily successful businessman who was then an activist uh, and and uh, and a, a motive actor in trying to help establish the uh, the the Jewish state. Um, his father became uh, who was a member of the commentary board in the 1980s and early 1990s became an ambassador. To Hungary, and now there is Tony Blinken, someone I know slightly, uh, who has served in um, both the Clinton and Obama administrations, and will now be uh, Secretary of State. So, what's uh, what 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 what's uh, what what struck you as most uh, salient about this piece? Well, I mean, it's it's not only um, a great um, story about um, uh, generations of of Jews in America, and and sort of. Um, what what that represents for many Jewish families in America, um, and and the changes uh, wrought, but um, there is this sort of question um, in there about uh, devotion to Israel and Jewishness um, over time, over in in successive generations. And um, one of the, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase because I can't, I don't have it in front of me, um, but one of the sort of ideas here, and it's, you know, um, just interesting, is this idea that, uh, so you have Antony Blinken, who you, you and, and I guess others in, in, his, in his family who um, have sort of devoted or perhaps kind of um, siphoned off or, or sort of mimicked the 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 sort of um, devotion to Israel um, uh, in in his in their capacities to dealing with other countries uh, officially for the U.S. government. Right. I mean, in some ways, you could say that um, that they uh, they transferred uh, their 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 the Zionist passion to a passion for the Democratic Party. Um, and that you go from uh, a grand a grandfather uh, Tony Blinken's grandfather doing what he co- could to establish the state of Israel to Tony Blinken supporting as a Obama administration official the JCPOA empowering Iran which of course has as one of its stated goals the um, the uh, elimination of Israel from from the planet Earth um, which is not to say that that's something that Tony Blinken believes in um, but that is an interesting sort of wrinkle and I think the other piece we should probably mention is Joseph Epstein's uh, The Making of a Misogynist, which uh, which is his personal account of having uh, written this uh, column uh, about uh, Jill Biden using the word doctor. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago on the on the podcast, Jill Biden uh, saying Jill Biden shouldn't call herself a doctor. She's not a medical doctor. And this is all part of the credentialism uh, madness on the part of the American elite. Um 
and uh, having written this for the Wall Street Journal in December, uh, the world came crashing down on his head. Uh, thousands of letters and emails. He was the number one trending topic on Twitter. Northwestern, where he taught for uh, several decades, um, dropped his name from their website. Um, and uh, and so this is an this is his account of what it was like to be at the center of one of these you know, media outrage storms. We should also mention, I think, um, the uh, James Miggs column, because it relates exactly to what we were talking about, um, um, explaining why the vaccine rollout has been as problematic as it has been. Um, and and Mayor Soloveitchik's column um, talking about why Israel's has been as, as successful as it's been. Right. So commentary. A good word, actually, for yeah. your ed letter. Oh, there's that, um, which has everything to do with the Capitol Hill riots. And there was a line in there that struck out at me that um, really crystallizes the conditions that the GOP faces right now. Quote, the Republican Party is in an existential fight for its own survival as a positive force in American politics and American society. And that's a that's a stark um, assessment of where we are today. Um, and it will be a fight, and it appears as though there are interested parties within the GOP who are willing to join it. As the Senate today resumes its regular business, um, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who will be Majority Leader for another 24 hours, no more, um, opened business by saying that, quote, the mob was fed lies that were provoked by the president and other powerful people, Um suggesting pretty clearly that he's not abandoning his original assessment of what needs to happen during the trial phase of impeachment, which will occur before the Senate um, pretty soon. And while I have every confidence that the Republican conference will figure out some way to weasel out of their obligations to posterity here, most notably being the fact that the president will be out of office, that's the easiest one to reach for. Um, You also had former Attorney General Barr say that the president did this, Um, in no uncertain terms, uh, all these people are going to potentially be brought as witnesses during this trial, which will be controlled by Democrats. Um, the amount of evidence that we'll be privy to over the course of this proceeding will be difficult to, uh, ignore for all but the most shameless, uh, public figures of whom there are probably several, uh, enough at least to ensure that the president is not convicted, but there will be a fight. And um, it seems like the the Republicans who were willing to compromise with the Trump movement are no longer. Well, we'll see about that. (laughs) I mean, that is really, I mean, that that is what what remains to be seen because also the way that Democrats conduct this trial, the way the House impeachment managers conduct the trial in the Senate is going to have an enormous effect on how the Republican senators react. Um, if, if, uh, If it's Eric Swalwell uh, wandering around saying that anybody who ever voted for Trump is a fascist who should be killed, there's going to be a blowback. If they manage it calmly, judiciously, and with some eye toward actually succeeding in winning the argument rather than scoring the partisan points that they want to score, and I'm not, I, I have no confidence that that is the case. Um, this is a very complicated moment, and they could really mishandle this very badly. Uh, even, even in their own terms and, and, and create the conditions from which Republicans could, in fact, weasel out of their 
their obligations rather than seeing this as a, as a moment to stand up and say, you know what, uh, maybe we can't live, maybe we can't live without him. Oh, maybe I, I, maybe I, I, we can't live without him, meaning Trump and his, and the way he marshals the, right. but we probably can't live with him either. And the country can't live with the example that he set and the Congress and the Senate cannot cannot live with the example that he set. But we'll we'll, we'll the conservative to- media environment going back to Bartiromo is clearly um, will will be in clearly inclined to uh, render whatever nonsense Eric Swalwell says uh, as an impeachment manager uh, and, and elevate it to you know the, the gravest of offenses and justify retroactively a rationale that Republicans had already reached, which is that the president needs to be acquitted. Um, I expect that to occur. That won't make it somehow justified. It doesn't matter. What I'm not justifying the- it. I'm saying actually there is a that that because of what Mitch McConnell said, because more and more information comes out that is not exculpatory but is more damning, and this trial is going to take a month. Uh, it starts the minute that the House um, transmits the ha- the minute the House transmits the articles of impeachment to the Senate. The trial must begin according to rules, and it has to go six days a week. It has to start at one p.m. every day, uh, and you know it, this is no joke. Like this whole notion that it could all be kind of brushed under the rug and done quickly and all that—that that is not going to happen as long as Nancy Pelosi sends the articles of impeachment over to the Senate. I don't know how she pockets them, um, and this will be the major event of the of the first month of the of the Biden administration. And could Republicans, uh, there are, could a third of the Republican caucus vote to convict? I think it could. It's a third of the caucus. That's 17 out of 50 uh, need to vote to, to, I don't know. I mean, who knows? Uh, Could it happen? It's not half. It's not two thirds. And, you know, yeah, if, if three or four former Trump cabinet members say, it's our view that he is responsible for this. That is exactly the kind of cover that they could use to say they have to do this in part, maybe to save their party. And if you want to save yourself a lot of trouble in your HR problems as a small businessman uh, or a small business person in a small business, uh, you will consider Bambi, our new advertiser this week, because when running a business, those HR issues can kill you, wrongful termination suits, labor regulations, then those HR manager salaries aren't cheap, an average of $70,000 a year. Well, Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business to give them a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat from onboarding to terminations. They customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month, month-to-month. No hidden fees. You can cancel anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. Let Bambi help. Get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule it. That's Bambi.com slash commentary, spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. Um, so uh, 
you guys don't watch football. I don't watch much football anymore. Um, but I did watch this game on Sunday night uh, between the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the New Orleans Saints with uh, Tom Brady and Drew Brees, both of them uh, two decade veterans of the uh, of the uh, of the NFL uh, playing against each other in the game that would determine which team would go to the to the NFC Championship. And um, speaking as somebody who is approaching uh, his uh, seventh decade, um, uh, I I was I found it very moving to see these guys, uh, forty three and forty two years old, like uh, uh, battling uh, for dominance. Um, and I, I I'm struck again by something. I wonder if um, so. Again, uh, Tom Brady is forty three. Drew Brees is forty two. Uh, you look at them, and they look like they're in their late twenties, early thirties. And it's like I, I, I just remember when I was a kid, people in their forties seemed a lot older than people in their forties do now. And I'm about to be sixty, and I don't. I feel maybe it's because I have teenage kids, but I, I feel younger at sixty. I think that my father felt at 60, though he, you know, I was like nearly 30 when he, when he turned 60 and I was youngest kid. So maybe it's kids that do that. But um, I don't know, it just struck me as a very interesting moment in time in which sort of all, all everyone's under, your one's understanding of age and the passage of time and all this is undergoing a real like world historical shift. Um. And uh, I didn't prepare you guys for this, for my, the fact that I'm talking about this. So uh, maybe you don't have anything to. to no, to, I, I to do. I, subject, but. No, it's it is a fascinating thing, and I've observed it too. Because when you you know, if you watch old movies, um, and you there are very often characters that are the sort of stern, the the sort of spine of the of the film, and it's you know some man dressed in a suit, and you know, and then you look up the actor's age and he's he was you know 29 at the time or something you know <laughs> and he's and he's you know he's 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 portraying the voice of reason you know um because they it's they not men today grown men today not they don't only look younger they sound younger um and i and yeah, i mean their voices, voices are higher yes yeah um, it is so. It is a fascinating thing, and I, I don't. I, I don't know if it. It is um, part of like the other sort of bio- large scale biological changes that also mystify us. That uh, these days, the in- increase in allergies and uh, uh, lowering of uh, sperm count and and whatever else, or if it is it is purely a a function of. Um, the culture shaping individuals. I have no idea, but it is very real. Ah, uh, well, I, I mean, I, you know, there was a lot of talk, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago. I remember David Skinner wrote a piece for the weekly standard about, uh, hairless men, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and, you know, the, 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 the male ideal having become uh, somebody with no, no, no chest hair, like the, that virility, um, and sort of manliness as it was formally understood, uh, had taken a real, uh, you know, had taken a beating and this is no longer the way, the way that things are. Although if you look at the recent, most recent trailer of the movie that Leonardo DiCaprio is going to be in, um, this, uh, this fall with Jennifer Lawrence, um, 
he looks like a mountain man, just like he did in, in the Revenant. So uh, he's he's hairless no lo- longer, though he though he though he was then. Um, I don't know. It, it just struck me as a very interesting uh, phenomenon. Also that the, also that these bodies uh, obviously it's freakish that uh, neither one of them has had a career ending injury or something like that. Most people in football have careers that last four years or five years or something like that. And they're obviously both, you know, they're very lucky, although uh, Breeze almost had a career-ending injury at the very beginning of his career. Um, but, you know, they've both been very lucky, and uh, and they take extraordinarily good care of themselves. And we obviously now know so much more about the body and how to keep take care of it and keep it in peak physical condition. Not that I would know anything about that, by the way, but... Uh, but 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 such is life. Uh, Noah, being being uh, younger uh, than we have here, we have literally here a twenty year gap. Uh, I'm uh, fifty nine, about to be sixty. Abe is forty nine. Noah's thirty nine. So we have a we have a we have a multi generational difference here. And, and Noah uh, obviously still feels like he's uh, twenty nine. Would that be? Yeah, that's it. Okay. <laughs> no, no I, yeah, I'm. I'm... I got hit by 39 pretty hard the other day. My uh, all of a sudden my little little knives being driven into my shoulder blades that forced me to lie on my back and I was like this is it. This is the rest of your life. Just lying on your floor looking at the ceiling in abject pain for no reason. Um but yeah, I I, I you know, I I'm relatively youthful. I don't have many health problems. It's the salubrious effect of uh being employed at this institution i i imagine this is that must uh, be it <laughs> this is where yeah, this keeps you young keeps you young um, absolutely worrying about the fate it. of the west and and then the, <laughs> the destruction of democratic institutions keeps you young i will say dana carvey had this bit in a comedy routine like 10 years ago uh, and this was actually i think this may have been before he himself went through this horrible medical catastrophe where the wrong side of his heart was operated on by a doctor. But he said, you know, you hit like 45 and suddenly you're walking around and you suddenly get attacked by nothing. You're like, Oh, my shoulder, you know, cause you're 45. So just parts of your body just start attacking you uh, out of, out of nowhere. So uh, I'm glad to see that as prodigious as you are, Noah, that your prodigy status got you, the attack on the shoulder at 39 instead of at, at, at 45, which I think is when uh, Dana Carvey said it would happen. Anyway, uh, we have uh, we have wasted your time uh, enough uh, for today. Uh, we'll be back uh, tomorrow. Uh, we are taping late, so you shouldn't expect to see this in your uh, in your uh, podcast feed really until the late afternoon tomorrow. And uh, as of now, we are still being joined by Megan McCain tomorrow uh, in the wake of the uh, inauguration of Joe Biden. So um, I hope you'll enjoy that. And for Noah and Abe, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.